Ion 2020, episode 71. Have 2020 vision with Ion 2020, the podcast that brings you all the news and events in the lead up to the next presidential election. I am Ray Eaton, and I will keep you up to date as we approach November 2020 with a libertarian perspective of all the candidates and their policies, along with the news. Thank you for tuning in. Now let's clear our vision. What's up, everybody? It's Ray Eaton, your host of Ion 2020, the place that you're coming to daily for the news and related events for the 2020 election. I have shows for you Monday through Friday and just making sure that I find and scour through the news and find all of the best information for you on a daily basis. And I'm broadcasting here from sunny South Carolina, two days away from my cruise, and I'm really excited about that. But don't worry, I will be gone a week, but don't worry. Uh, I got a full lineup of shows for you Monday through Friday as well, and I'm working on the final one today as well. So just know that uh, I will not leave you hanging high and dry because the magic of podcasting is that I could still just set a day for that thing to re- be released and that's what I'm going to be doing so uh, enjoy those shows I think I got a couple of really good ones for you uh, hopefully they're all good but I got a couple that I really liked uh, that I put together I worked really hard on those so anyway I appreciate you listening I really do go ahead if you can give me a five-star rating review on your podcatcher and uh, if you really like the show, you can go ahead and subscribe to it as well. Best way to subscribe is just to hit that subscribe button, boom, and it'll uh, pop up in your podcatcher tomorrow, which is amazing, right? Great thing that you can do. So you don't have to search for my show every single day. Uh, and then you'll have those five shows for next week as well. So I appreciate you, what, what uh, you know, all your f- first time listeners, if you're coming out and listening, I appreciate you and those that have listening since I started. Uh, keep on listening. I appreciate it. So I really do. Um, anyway, I wanted to talk about a few things today. And I think that uh, I've been thinking about this. Yesterday, I was watching, I don't know if I was watching something on YouTube or, or anything, but I think it was from Reason TV. And they were just going through some really interesting stuff uh, where they're showing an Al Sharpton event, and every single candidate that was there, they had, you know, Beto O'Rourke, they had Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders. I think they must, they must have brought in every single candidate. Or every single candidate needed to uh, signal that they are, you know, for African Americans and so forth. It's an it's a Al Sharpton event, you know. And they just need to be doing the right virtue signaling that they're in support of African-American rights and everything else. Like, anyone's against African-American rights. I mean, I think that just about everybody in America is probably for African-American rights. Like, you know, us all being treated equal in the, equal in the eyes of the law, things of that nature. Um, now, there are systematic systemic things like the drug war and so forth that unequally affects poor communities and a lot of poor communities are african-american and that kind of you know is like a self-licking ice cream cone per se where 
you're in a poor community and the cops over police over there and so forth and drugs are illegal and they keep on just arresting these guys and then that perpetrates you know fatherless homes and things of that nature which then creates more people that are being scooped up in this drug war so there are things that are challenging within those communities but the fact of the matter is is that i don't think that we have too much racism in general and there are those few people that are probably you know those really right i guess those right-wing nationalist groups or whatever that uh aren't you know that are out there but I'm just not seeing it in my day to day that we're really making that I'm not really making decisions based upon uh, whether you're black or white, and I don't see a lot of people doing that as well. I mean, even in my business that I'm in now, um, I just don't see. I just don't see it. We're not making this like there's no check black or white on your application for credit with my company, you know. So, um, and I and. When, I, when I'm making those decisions, I'm basing it upon how they're running their business and how their bank statements are and things of that nature. So those are things that I'm taking into account. And I, I just don't see people above me making any decisions about those things. But I just don't see the same thing. I don't look at the world through a, um, a white versus black lens. And I think that uh, we need to get away from that. But anyway, besides that point, getting on to what I was watching yesterday. So uh Every single candidate, they're all doing their virtual signaling. They're over at Al Sharpton's event, and they're, and then he says he asks every single one of them, "Will you support rep, a bill for reparations? Will you support a bill for reparations?" And every single one of them, yes. Next, next question, yes. Next person asks the same question, yes. Beto O'Rourke, yes. Will Elizabeth Warren, yes. Every single one of them is saying that they are going to support reparations. So these are these are the candidates that are running on the Democratic ticket. If you do not support rep, are you really going to say to Al Sharpton that you're not going to support rep, rep, reparations anyway? You're at his event, um, but most of them they answered in a very strong affirmative. They didn't bounce around the question. They didn't say, "Well, I support investing in the communities." They said, "No, I would support a bill that establishes reparations." and <clears throat> what I want to get at is this, and th- this is what I'm looking at, uh, or this is what I was thinking when I was watching that. So you have a very divided population right now. You have a population that's the far left and the far right, and they, the cons- the far, you know, the the far the progressives versus the the conservative movement, and the progressives have gone very far left, and a lot of conservatives seem like they may have gone pretty far right. I'm not, I, I think it's more on the left than it is on the right for the extremist views. I mean, there's those few um, crazies out there that are marching in, Char- in Charlottesville, things of that nature, right? Uh, or, you know, but you're not having, on the conservative side, you're not having just like this cra- these crazy views that are being espoused and people are just falling in line to believe in those things. But those people, the the people on the far edges not the people in the middle, are the ones that are kind of um, controlling the narrative right now. And you have this division within the country that causes people to have to choose sides. So you have to choose the left or the right, but there's no in the middle, right? That's the, that's the perception that people have. And when you have a situation like that, then it allows for them to throw these little teeny ideas out there 
and if everyone in that are in the, like the leadership positions kind of agrees with them, then it forces you to make a decision. Well, yeah, I'm for them, so I'm going to be for that as well. So they could throw these stupid little things like reparations. That, I mean, they talked about that in the 60s and 70s and the 80s, and you know, it comes up in the 90s and the 2000s and so forth. But that's becoming a mainstream view now in the liber- in the, in the um, on the liberal left. So it's becoming a mainstream view for the Democrats, <clears throat> especially these guys that are running for for president. And then you have Medicare for all was not a mainstream view until recently, but they're able to float that out there because you're either for for us or you're against us, but there's no in-between, right? You can't have a middle ground. And it's the same thing they did with the uh, abortion issue. You can't be, you either have to be pro-life or pro-choice, but you can't be in-between. So if you're, if you are a person that says, you know what, I'm okay with abortion for the first 12 weeks, but after that, you know, I think that that would be wrong. Well, most abortions happen in the first 12 weeks anyway. I think it's like 80% of abortions happen in the first 12 weeks anyway. So if you're the person that says anything after that is wrong, then you're, then you're criticized from both sides. Oh no, you're for killing babies. Oh no, you're for, you know, terrorizing women and not allowing them to make their own choices. That's what they're going to say on both sides. When in reality, you can be, there is some gray area there in that world. And, a, and most people fall into that gray area, but it silences those people in the middle that they don't want to speak up and say anything because they feel like they're going to be criticized from both sides. And it's the other, the, it's the peripheries that are wrong on almost every single issue when it comes to these things. So I was just thinking about that when they're talking about the reparations and every single one of those candidates was for it. It just made me think that when you have a, a political situation like what we're in now, where there's no middle ground whatsoever, it, it forces people to take sides, and you're taking sides on issues that never would have been brought up 10 to 12 years ago, ever. They would never would have been brought up seriously back then. So what we're looking at is just a, it's, it's a challenging political environment, and it really has come down to these politicians dividing people in order to get these votes and now they're just going to try to do all the handouts that they can and try to in in order to get more votes as well it's like a race to see who can hand out the most stuff and it just it's just wrong it's, it's absolutely wrong and you guys know that and i wish the people in the middle those people that are just the middle people would just kind of stand up and say what y'all are doing is wrong and we need to change and so forth uh we need to change the culture that's going on uh, libertarians, I mean, I think that we have it in general, we have it right in the sense that we kind of step away from the political environment a lot of times and <clears throat> we try to be a little bit more objective in our views than basing it upon feelings and emotions and things of that nature. Um, but we don't get very political a lot of times and to me, I think that I think that we just need to be able to, to raise up our voices and say, you know what, there is some gray area here within what you guys are saying, especially on reparations. Like, there is there's an argument to be made for reparations. I've said this before. There is an argument to be made. It should have been made back when the, the, the original slaves in the South were freed. I mean, there should have been some way for them to claim land that their generations have been working on 
uh, from the owners of these plantations because the plantation owners essentially had been stealing these people's labor for years and years and years. And when these plantation owners are able to sit there and steal the labor of these slaves for years and years and years for generations, then they could essentially lay some sort of claim on that property. Now, 20 years later, you're looking at a situation where maybe statute of limitations has been, you know, is up at that point. I mean, there's got to be some statute of limitations rules on the, you know, on the ability to claim that, but it was never even looked at. So maybe the ability for somebody whose grandmother was the mother or was the daughter of a slave, maybe that person can have some sort of claim on that property that goes back if it hasn't already been sold. I mean, we're just so far away from slavery now that it would be almost impossible to lay claim on property that far back. But if there was a way to prove it, and that property is still in the hands of the same family, then maybe there's some way to go about making that happen. <clears throat> I just don't see it in today's modern age, the ability to make that happen. It's, it's almost impossible. So then what the Democrats are saying is we should socialize that cost then. They're essentially saying that we need to, as a society, have the government pay through taxation. So they're going to tax the people and then they're going to pay it out to the ancestors of slaves. Somehow they're going to figure that out, right? A person comes over from Kenya in 1940, then just because they're African American or, they, or you know they're black, are they going to get reparations as well? That's you know all the minute details that they're going to have to figure out as well if they were going to do something like that. But what they're saying is we're going to steal from the people in America, we're going to tax them. And we're going to take that money and then we're going to distribute it, redistribute it to the ancestors of slaves. Um, as a government, that's what we're going to do. We're going to socialize that cost. And that would be wrong. That would be absolutely, that would be no more than redistribution of wealth. That would be no more than confiscating it from someone else and taking and giving it to somebody else. I mean, no, but no different than the robber walking into your house and taking your money by force and then telling you, it's okay, I'm going to give it to some poor people. That's, there's no difference whatsoever. So, um, and you should not feel good about it because it's going to somebody that's less uh, less well off than you, I guess. And there's no way that you should feel that way. So, um, but all it is is virtue signaling by these, by these Democratic candidates. They're just virtue signaling and saying, yes, I want the African-American vote and I'm going to give you guys reparations. I'm going to give you guys money from the government to make up for lost time or something. I'm not sure how they would do that. So, um, anyhow, but this would not have even come up if we were not in a situation where um, there's just this huge division where you have to choose sides. And the politicians have caused that, the news media has caused that, um, and the culture is going in that direction where everyone has their tribe, everyone has their group, everyone has their identity, and then you have the identity politics of the day, which was what we have now, and it's just wrong. It absolutely is. Um, but let me move on. Let me get, let me hop on to my next point that I want to make today, and that is this. So thinking about this whole scenario with Iran, and I brought this up the last two days as well, 
And I, I'm just been thinking and thinking and thinking about this because I think it's terrible. I think it's terrible for the world. I think it's terrible that we have a president that just announces that he's going to make it so that the Iranian Revolutionary Guard is a terrorist organization. And I think it's wrong. But this is this is my conspiracy theory on this thing. And tell me what you think about it because I really think that... Um, it might happen. I really do, and it, it scares the it scares the pants off of me, to be honest with you. Um, so we're looking at the Iranian the Iranian Revolutionary Guard is now labeled as a terrorist organization by Donald Trump. The utilization for the or the authorization for the use of force was declared back in 2001 after Afghanistan or to be used in Afghanistan to go after Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda and its affiliates, right? Um, that and affiliates means people that are labeled as terrorist organizations, essentially. So by doing that, it gives Donald Trump the ability to lab- since they're labeled as a terrorist organization, that he can rationalize using force against them through that authorization. So that gives him the executive power to do that and bypass Congress because they already authorized it way back then. Presidents have done it. You know, George Bush did it. Barack Obama did it, and now Trump has been doing it as well in other countries like Syria, Libya, and so forth, and uh, and in Yemen and elsewhere. So right now we're looking at a we're at a situation though where Iran has military forces in Syria, they have military forces in Yemen, they have military forces in a few other countries around the Middle East, and they're looked at as people that are helping out the current regime in those countries that are fighting against the Saudis in Yemen, that are fighting against the Americans and um, ISIS in Syria, that are helping those those countries' militaries to fight against uh, what they term as invaders and so forth, right? Um, Or in Yemen, um, there's the revolution that's going on there. And what's happening there, there's just, you know, Saudi Arabia is trying to have its sway over that country. And Iran is trying to have its sway over that country. So there's kind of a a proxy thing going on there with the people of those countries in the middle. So this particular declaration by Donald Trump is going to allow America to rationalize keeping its bases in Syria because there's terrorists there, even even if ISIS is gone. Even if Al-Qaeda is gone, the Iranian military has a presence there, and now they're a terrorist organization. So, we'll never leave. The United States will never leave until Iran le- the Iranian military forces leave. And they're not going to leave because they're helping out Assad to fight against America. But now Assad is allied with terrorists. So, what does that do? It allows the rationale... That we're going to continue fighting some proxy war in Syria now against Iran. Same thing in Yemen. If there's soldiers from the Revolutionary Guard in Yemen, then it gives American soldiers and President Donald Trump the ability to send soldiers into Yemen to take out those forces as well. Because they're terrorists. So, but by... But now with them declaring... CENTCOM, that's the central command for the Middle East, a terrorist organization. I think that was this them just puffing out their chests, to be honest with you. But I just wonder if this was the, the entire chess game that's being played is based upon 
how are we going to stay in Syria? The and how are we going to um, continue to fight in Yemen and so forth? Now Donald Trump has said he wants out of Syria, so I'm not sure how this plays into that hand. I I just don't know. Um, because every time he declares that he wants to get out of Syria, all of a sudden John Bolton the next day is on TV saying, yeah, right, we're not really getting out. Uh, essentially, that's what he's saying. Or, yeah, it's not really two months. It's more like like whenever whenever all the terrorists are gone. Well, now they're all now the terrorists are there helping out Assad as well. So can they go and invade you know, the capital city at that point, Damascus? Because there's Iranian soldiers there? Who knows? Um, the next thing, I mean... <laughs> It's just, it blows my mind that we're in a situation like that, but Donald Trump has been put in the situation. He does not have any power against the industrial, the military industrial complex. He just does not have that power, it seems like to me. And, um, and that's scary. That is really scary that they have that much control. And then Benjamin Netanyahu is bragging on Twitter or something the other day, saying that he thanks Donald Trump for doing, for making, or declaring the um, Iranian military a terrorist organization and that he did it because I told him to. So what? Now Donald Trump is his puppet? Now Donald Trump is, is Israel's puppet in the Middle East? We're just basically, you know, hitmen for hire over in the Middle East by Israel and we're paying Israel to be allowed to do it, essentially. It's not like they're over there paying the United States to do it. <clears throat> and that would be wrong to do anyway. No, they're paying politicians through the Israel lobby in Washington D.C. to keep to to keep our military presence over there, and that's the that's the truth of the matter. So I'm way off of politics right now, and I apologize. This is more of an eye on the empire segment, I guess. But this is Donald Trump that's doing this, and it just shows his weakness. It shows that he is doing the wrong thing at the expense of the American public, and I think that. You know, and of the American soldier. I mean, these soldiers, they go where they're told to go. They don't question it. They're 18-year-old kids that go where they're told to go. And if it means getting blown up by some bomb, if it means going into Syria and fighting against a terrorist organization that's really just the Iranian army, um, they'll do it. I mean, that's what they're told to do. So that's what they signed up for. And they're going to go in there and protect their buddies' asses. Excuse my language. Because that's what they do. And it's just wrong to use them as the pawns in your stupid game, which is John Bolton's stupid game, apparently. This neoconservative movement that is just going to destroy this country. Um, <clears throat> so now that I went off on that tangent, let's get into something that um, that is an interesting topic as well. And I just want to talk about one particular um, one particular candidate that just decided to run. Um, and it's a really interesting story, and I just wanted to, I want to bring this to you as well, because he, his, his campaign slogan is no more wars, and, uh, while he is definitely not a libertarian, he's definitely not a, uh, even close to a libertarian on his domestic policy. I can support him on his anti-war stance that he's taken, so let me go ahead and tell you a little bit about him real fast. So this is from consortiumnews.com on April 9th, 2019. It says, uh, the, US former, the former U.S. Senator, 89 years old, who read the Pentagon Papers into the congressional record and ran for president in 2008, says he's not entering to win, but to inject crucial issues into the Democratic 
primary debates. Former U.S. Senator Mike Gravel formally declared his bid on Monday for the Democratic Party's 2020 nomination for president in an effort to introduce into the primary debates crucial, critical discussions of the U.S. interventionist foreign policy abroad and a system for direct democracy at home. So he's for, he's against U.S. interventionism abroad, but he's also for direct democracy at home. Uh, Gravel, who is 89 years old, said he's not in it to win, but to spur debate on what he sees as the two most vital issues facing the United States, ending militarism and expanding democracy beyond representative government. So he basically wants to change the entire United States, which is, you know, no conservative is going to go for that. And uh, I don't know if I would want direct democracy in the first place, but I do love the idea that his campaign slogan is no more wars and that that's going to be his main point is to go after the interventionist foreign policy that America has. I think it's amazing. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know a little bit about him as well. So now let's talk about what is, um, what is direct democracy? That's what, I mean, knowing a little bit about it or knowing just enough about it to um, hold a conversation, I guess, direct democracy is the idea that you basically get rid of the governing bodies, right? Um, like the Congress, Senate, maybe even the president, I would suppose, in that you just have a direct democracy that says that uh, everything that comes up, the entire, uh, maybe you would still have some kind of um, elected leaders as well, but you would have, be in a situation where you would elect those leaders and then whenever there's something that needs to get done, you would have a direct vote of the entire United States everybody in the United States would vote on every single thing, and then those people would just be there to make it happen, I would imagine. So, and correct me if I'm wrong, you could do that through I am the Empire, my Twitter handle, which is I, at I am the Empire, or you could let me know at uh, IamTheEmpire.com. You could let me know about that as well. But if that's the case, I mean, then you just have the, t- the tyranny of the, of the majority in this world, right? You would need some kind of constitutional bounds on your government, or else... They could say, well, we're going to slaughter all Asian people, and let's vote on it. And if everybody, if if Americans generally don't like Asian people that month, then we're just going to go slaughter them all. Um, I just thought, you have to have some sort of bounds. You have to have some sort of constitutional bounds on your government, and then at least you'd have a slow growth of that tyranny rather than an immediate tyranny, right? Um, But if that's what... direct democracy is i'm not for that because they always say i mean that's just tyranny of the masses and that's all it is um but i am for non-intervention so i want to look a little bit more about this guy and see who he is Uh, i'll probably end up doing a show on him as well just to see who he is and uh, what he stands for and so forth but um but yeah it's mike gavel and uh or gravel, sorry, Mike Gravel, and they're calling it his movement the Gravelanche. So, and he, he, it actually turns out that he was not even thinking about running for president. It was like a group of younger college kids that got together and got him to decide to run. And it's not, and he's not running to win. He's 89 years old. I don't. He has any intention of that. He's out there to get on that debate stage and get that 65,000 uh, number of 
people that donate to his campaign so that he can get on that debate stage. And once he's on there, then he can be another voice like a Tulsi Gabbard for this to end foreign intervention. And uh, he's also going to talk about direct democracy at that point. But the only reason why he could talk about something like direct democracy right now is because he can push these issues even further to the left, push these issues like direct democracy because we're in a political environment that allows for that stuff uh, and be taken seriously. I don't know that he ran on that in 2008. Supposedly he did run on that. Or he did run in 2008 for the Libertarian ticket, but I swore it was for the... um, I swore it was not Libertarian. I swore it was for the Democratic ticket. But somebody else mentioned that it was Libertarian ticket. um, And someone else said it was the uh, Democratic ticket. And I think it was more likely that it was the Democratic... Yeah, it was the Democratic nomination. It says it right here in this article that I'm looking at from Consortium News. In 2008, Gavel... Or Gravel emerged from a long absence in politics to challenge for the 2008 Democratic presidential nomination. He entered several debates and shared the stage with Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden. Okay, so there he was. So he did run back then. Uh, But he's also the guy that put the Pentagon Papers into public record by reading them on the Senate floor. And he went against everyone's um, idea, or everyone in the establishment was against him doing that. But he went and read it on the... Uh, read, read something that was top secret on the Senate floor, which is allowed um, to get into public record, which was which took a lot of balls to do something like that. I'm sure back then, uh, but he did it. So, uh, but anyway, guys, I appreciate you listening. If you didn't hear earlier, you can go ahead and uh, check out my website, iontheempire.com. You can also follow me on Twitter through i on the empire as well. And then I'm on Facebook with that same eye on the empire. So just type that in. And then uh, go ahead and give me a uh, five-star rating in review and subscribe to the show so you can hear it tomorrow, all right? And then come back tomorrow so you can have clear vision for 2020.